Thank you very much, Naomi, for ministering in music. In light of the message of that song and the passage we will consider this morning, let's pray together and express to God our desire to be sensitive to him. Father, we know that you're far beyond us in terms of holiness, power, knowledge, ability, love, grace, compassion. But yet we can address you as Father. So we interact with your word this morning. It's our desire to understand. Desire in your spirit to minister to us. And as you minister to us, we want to be sensitive. We want to be responsive as we live each day for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's a Bible character that I think most of us have heard or are familiar with, and his name is Job. We know that Job was not aware of what was happening, but there was a scene in heaven, in the heavenlies, I should say, taking place, where Satan would have come to God and God would have said, and God initiated it, would have said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And we know that Satan said, well, he responds to you just because of all the good that you give him and all you have done for him. And Satan said, you know, let me have him for a little while and we'll see what happens. And then one day we know that Job lost his animals, his donkeys, his camels, and then... He lost his ten children. And laid a scripture all in the same day. And in some respects he lost his wife also. Because his wife was influenced. Her wealth is also gone. Her children also died. And she said, why don't you curse God and die? Sometime later we know that Satan again appeared before God. And God again initiated the process and said, have you considered my servant Job? And God basically, or Satan basically said, well, God, he lost his possessions and family, but if you touch his physical well-being, he will curse you. And God said, okay, Satan, you may have the rain, but you may not take his life. And we know that Job got sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And scripture clearly says that Job did not sin. And I would pose a question. And I realize Romans 8, 28 through 39 was written after the events of Job's life. But how did God work that for good in Job's life? How did God work the loss of his children, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his physical health for good. Ponder that as we turn to Romans 8 and read together verses 28 through 39. Romans 8, I'll begin with verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Or from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We know that Romans was written to the saints in Rome, according to chapter 1 and verse 7. It's written to those who are displaying life. According to Romans 8, 1 through 27, there was a relationship with God. They were walking in the Spirit, but yet they had struggles along the way. It was written to believers who were facing ongoing hardships because in Romans 5, Paul says, you know, don't only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but also rejoice in your trials. And in chapter 8 and verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the immediate context... You have Sunday evening, or Jared, not Sunday morning. In the immediate context, he's talking to believers who have died with Christ in chapter 6. They had a struggle with sin in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he talks about the life they have in Christ in verses 1 through 17. And then he mentions future glory in chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And in verses 28 through 30, I think we have the foundation of the passage we're considering. And then in 31 through 39, we have the building. And last week we looked at verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. And we found that God is the one who is at work. The one who considers the nations of the world as a drop in the bucket, is at work. He says, for good, for our profit, for our benefit. And he says it's his purpose. And as we found last week, his purpose emphasizes the inner, not merely the changing the outward circumstances, 
Not that everything's going to improve, but that something is taking place in the character in the person. And the reason God can work all for good because he has predetermined that we're to be conformed to the image of his son, and that he predestined, he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he also glorified. And as we look at verses 31 through 39, we're dealing with God. We're dealing with God who considers the nations as a drop in the bucket. You consider our country and the many, many dozens of other countries in the world, they're like a drop in a bucket to the Lord in contrast to him. Not that they're insignificant or unimportant, but in contrast to him, they're very, very small. And it's this God who mentions what he does. What then shall we say in response to this? See, remember Job. Job is the one who lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his health. But what did God do? God worked in his life to bring Job to the point of having no answers, having nothing in life, but having God. That was good. Job came to the end of the book that's recorded for us, repenting. And God saying, you have me. You have no answers, but you have me. It is that God who raises the question through Paul in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? What shall we say in response to God being able to take all that comes into our life, into our church's life, and work them for good, for profit, according to his purpose? The one who called, the one who justified, the one who glorified. What's the answer? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us. In chapter 3, he talked about the fact that in Christ we have righteousness. In chapter 5, he talks about the fact that there is a love of God that is so great. In chapter 5, 9 through 11, he talks about the fact that we have been reconciled to God, restored to favor with God. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 8, 15 through 17, we can cry, Abba, Father. We're heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. And then in chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with, that, with the glory that will be revealed in us. In chapter 8, 25 through 27, he says, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. If God is for us, Who can be against us? The enemy, Satan, was against Job, but what happened in Job's life? God was for him, and Job, or God brought Job to the point of saying, God, I have you, and you alone are sufficient. There may be many things against the local church, or maybe many things and people against an individual. God is able to take that, those items, as we discussed last week, 
and work them for good, for profit, according to his purpose. The church in Corinth had many problems, but God was working for his good in their local church. The seven churches that are recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, five of them had some major issues, but God was working for his good, for his purpose in their lives. So think about difficulties that you may face in life. If God is for us, who can be against us? I know I mentioned, and it should be obvious, that one of the gods that I had in my life years ago was a 1969 Chevelle. And when that was totaled by a driver who had no insurance, there was drugs in the car, he was an alcohol, and he had no driver's license. I had some issues with God. God worked that, what I called evil in my life, for good. He brought me to the point of giving my car up. Saying, God, car or no car, you're sufficient. You worked in evil for good. Think about your life, what you face. If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 32, Paul raises the question, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. The greater is that God gave Christ. The lesser is, will he not give us everything else that we need? God has given righteousness, peace, grace, dead to sin, alive with Christ, through Christ. Will he not give us a little smidgen of help when we need it as we go through some trial? Will he not help the local church as they go through a relational struggle if he gave Christ? The obvious answer is yes. God is for us in verse 31. God gives all things in verse 32. And then in verse 33, it is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Answer, it is God who justifies. Now, the word charge means to accuse. The word charge involves instituting or beginning a judicial process. Someone is going to bring a charge against you. They begin a judicial process of bringing a charge against you. That's the idea of accuse. Satan accusing Job as an example. Think about the Roman believers. Charges are being brought against them. They're being persecuted. So Paul asked them, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Have you ever been shot at as an individual, by your mate, by some family member, by some fellow believer, by a co-worker, by a neighbor, by a friend, by an enemy, where they bring charges against you?
What shall we say? Who will bring a charge against us? Paul's answer is, it's God who justifies. Someone may bring a charge against you. You may bring a charge against someone else. But for the believer in Christ, God justifies. The charge does not stand. Now we can compare it to our court systems in America. You can take something to a local magistrate, and it may go to a county level, it may go to a state level, it may go to another court beyond that, but ultimately it could end up at the Supreme Court. And the decision of the Supreme Court stands final. In essence, God is the Supreme Court in the universe. He says, my kids are declared righteous, period. Anyone else may bring a charge, but it doesn't stand. You're declared righteous. That's the answer. It is God who justifies. So in essence, in light of 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, Christ is our attorney. Someone brings a charge against you. The enemy, Satan, brings a charge against you in the heavenly scene. And God says, Satan, you're bringing this charge through this person. Christ says, Father, I intercede for them. I've already justified them. And God bangs the gavel and says, case dismissed. They're already justified. Now think about that in day-by-day living as we face charges from many sources. It's God who has justified. God is for us in verse 31. God gives us all things in verse 32. God justifies in verse 33. And in verse 34, we have a divine intercessor. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who is he that condemns? Condemns bringing a charge against, to place in a guilty light. A friend, a co-worker, whoever may bring a charge against us. Who is he that condemns? The answer, whoever condemns, it's Christ Jesus, the one who died, who was raised to life, is it now at the right hand of God interceding for us. The Roman believers have had charges brought against them. At points in time in the Roman church, some of them may have died in the arena as wild animals attacked them and killed them. And Paul says, Christ is interceding for you. Think about your life. A friend, a co-worker, an enemy. Someone condemns you. Christ is making intercession for you at the right hand of the throne of God. It's interceding. And I want to emphasize that Christ interceding for us is in the context of those that condemn. Hebrews 4 talks about the fact that we have a great high priest. But here the context is one of 
condemnation. Christ intercedes. Have you ever been condemned? Have you ever been criticized? Coming back to the fact, Christ is interceding for you. In verse 31, we have God for us. In verse 32, we have God gives us all things. In verse 33, God justifies. In verse 34, we have a divine intercessor. And then in verses 35 through 39, we find that God loves his children. He raises a question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall? What's the answer? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And then he quotes from Psalm forty-four, twenty-two: As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now Psalm 44 and 22 is in the context of people just living in obedience to the Lord. They're living in obedience to the Lord. And as they live in obedience to the Lord, they're facing some hardship and difficulty. And it is in that that context that the psalmist says, For your sake, Father, we're obeying you. We're living in sensitivity to you. And all day long, we're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Question for you, Zach. Sheep, you take them to the slaughterhouse. Do they resist? Overall, I mean, are they aware of what's coming and so on? No. No. They're dumb. May I use that term? (laughs) You know, I mean, in some respect, you know, they, they don't resist. And I think that's where the psalmist is coming from. Sheep to be slaughtered. They're not thinking ahead. Oh, this is happening. We're going to be slaughtered. We're going to resist. The Roman believers faced death, persecution, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What is the answer Paul gives? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? Just in living in obedience to God, you face death. You consider the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Love, the love of Christ, moves from one from fear to confidence. Just recently reading in a book, Um, martyrs and persecution that is taking place in the church age today. About one, a parent who was going to be killed for their faith in one of the countries in Mideast. And as the person is going to be killed, they were told, wow, Their child is sitting there, standing there watching. If you deny the faith, we'll let you live. 
Your child will not have to see us kill you. And the parent looked at the child, and the child said, Don't deny Christ. Die for him. I love you. And the parent was killed for their faith. Having the love of the child reaffirmed. As we go through the difficulties of life, life and death and angels and demons and the present and the future and the powers, height and depth, or anything else in all creation, he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's freeing. That gives confidence. That deals with fear. In the trials that the Romans are facing, even death. Paul says, you can't be separated from the love of Christ. What can you do to make God love you more? Nothing. What can you do to make God love you less? Nothing. For the child of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How many times do you beat up in yourself? How many times do you get down when difficulties come? You say, God, you're not separated from me. You're not separated from the love of Christ. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, God gives us all things. Verse 33, God justifies. Verse 34, God gives a divine intercessor. And verses 35 through 39, God loves. So think about our local church and difficulties we may have been through the years. Financially, one point in time, didn't even have enough money to pay the bills for the coming week. As you look back at our history, there were some tough times relationally. You look back at our history, pastor many years ago more or less said, you're done. No, wasn't given warning, you know, just, again, many years ago. As you look back at our history, you'll find that some Leaders that were very effective in being used mighty, mightily by God just died and passed off the scene. I'm going back quite a few years. You look back at our more recent history, we've had people go through some very deep physical trials. In the last five to eight years, you look at our history, you will find that some people have been through some very deep trials financially and relationally. people have been through very deep physical trials in all of that. Christ, God, I should say, is at work for our good, for our profit, according to his purpose. Think about your own life. 
and trials and difficulties that you have been through. God says, I take them and I use them for good, for profit in your life according to my purpose. I develop you to depend more and more deeply upon me. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant as a teen outside of marriage, and probably rejected or faced a lot of opposition by the community. She had a baby in a stable away from home. Real comforting for an expectant mother. And after that, she was on the run. Went to Egypt. And ultimately, back into what is called the promised land. God worked that for good. And then her son died. God worked that for good in her life. For his glory. Peter was a fisherman. He was rebuked by Jesus. Apparently there was some pride in Peter's life. He denied knowing Christ. He was rebuked in a public setting apparently by Paul. God worked that for good because Peter later wrote First and Second Peter. And in Second Peter he says, Add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and so on. God worked in his life for good, for profit. Think about a Priscilla Martin, what she may have been through, or a Sharon Cease, and what she has faced over the years, or Arden Delcanic, and what he has been through. And I can mention some others. That what God allows to come into the life of the body of a local believer, or a local church, into the life of believers, he works for good for profit, according to his purpose. Not always easy. Not always good from our perspective, but God works to that end because God is for us. He's given us all things. He is justified. He has provided a divine intercessor. And he loves us. Be open to the Lord ministering to you through his word. You've never come to Christ. Why don't you come to him this morning? Let's sing together as Travis comes to lead us.